Chapter Three of A Woman's War by Warwick Deeping. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three. Mrs. Betty Steele sat alone at the breakfast table with a silver teapot covered with a crimson cosy before her, and a pile of letters and newspapers at her elbow. The west front of St. Antonia's showed through the window, buttress and pinnacle glimmering up into the morning sunlight frost-rhymed trees spun a scintillant net against the blue the quiet life of the old town went up with its lazy plumes of smoke into the crisp air mrs betty steele drew a slice of toast from the rack toyed with it and looked reflectively at her husband's empty chair she was a dark sinuous feline creature was mrs betty with a tight red mouth and an olive whiteness of skin under her black wreath of hair her hands were thin mercurial and yet suggestive of pretty and graceful claws a clever woman cleverer with her head than with her heart acute elegant aggressive yet often circuitous in her methods she had abundant impulse in her blood and clan even evidenced by the way in which she ripped the wrapper from a copy of the Wilmenden Mail. Mrs. Betty buried her face in the pages, crumbling her toast irritably as her eyes ran to and fro over the headlines. She glanced up as her husband entered, a smooth-faced, compressed and professional person, with an assured manner and an incisive cut of the mouth and chin. "'Any news in this hub of monotony?' his wife put down the paper and called back the dog who was poking his nose near the bacon dish on the fire guard quack medicines much in evidence the fellows are arrant papists parker they promise to cure everything with nothing to your coffee mrs betty spoke with the slight drawl that was habitual to her her admirers felt it to be distinguished but its effect upon shop assistants was to spread the instincts of socialism dr parker steele declared for coffee and took salt to his porridge he was not a man who wasted words save perhaps on the most paying patience professional ambition and an aggressive conviction that he was to be the leading citizen in roxton filled the greater part of the gentleman's sphere of consciousness and local sensations mrs pindar's ball a very dull affair sausage rolls and jelly and a floor like glue probably anyone there the lombard street clique the carnabys tom fleming kate murchison etc 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 parker steele grunted and appeared to be estimating the number of cubes in the sugar bowl by way of exercising himself in the compilation of statistics murchison not there i suppose he asked the wife quite sufficient her husband smiled, showing the regular white teeth under his trim black moustache, with scarcely any flow of feeling in his features. Dr. Parker Steele was very proud of his teeth and fingernails. "'You don't love that lady much, eh?' Mrs. Betty's refined superciliousness trifled with the suggestion. "'Kate Murchison? I cannot say that I ever trouble much about her. Rather fat and vulgar, perhaps.' fat women do not appeal to me they seem to carry sentimentality and gush about with them like patchouli do you think that you are gaining ground on murchison parker hey eh? the husband appeared confident perhaps 
old hicks will resign the hospital soon you must take it not worth the trouble mrs betty's dark eyes condemned the assertion dirt's money in the wrong place as they say in trade parker well and the amused consort glanced at her with a cold flicker of affection study it on utilitarian principles lady twaddle twaddle sends her cook or her gardener or her boot boy to be treated in roxton hospital you exercise yourself on the boot boy or the cook and lady twaddle twaddle approves the cure praise is never thrown away let the old ladies who attend missionary meetings say of you that dr steele is so kind and attentive to the poor we have to lay the foundation of a palace in the soil parker steele chuckled knowing that behind mrs betty's elegant verbiage there was a tenacity of purpose that would have surprised her best friends i wonder whether murchison is as privileged as i am he said passing his cup over the red tea cosy i suppose the woman gushes for him just as i work my wits for you the amazons of roxton we live in a civilized age parker but the battle is no less bitter for us i use my head half the words i speak are winged for a final end you are clever enough betty he confessed we both have brains and she gave an ironical laugh i shall not be content till the world our world fully recognizes that fact old hicks is past his work murchison is the only rival you need consider therefore parker our battle is with the gentleman of lombard street and with the wife that is my affair such life feuds as are chronicled in the hatred of a friedegonde for a brunerholt may be studied in miniature in many a modern setting ever since childhood betty steele and katherine murchison had been born foes their innate instincts had seemed antagonistic and repellent and the life of roxton had not chastened the tacit feud girls together at the same school they had fought for leadership and moral sway katherine had been one of those creatures in whom the deeper feelings of womanhood had come early to the surface children had loved her her arms had been always open to them and she had stood out as a species of little mother to whom the owners of bleeding knees had run for comfort the rivalry of girlhood had deepened into the rivalry of womanhood they were the beauties of roxton the one generous ruddy and open-hearted the other sleek white-faced a studied artist in elegance and charm both were admired and championed by their retainers katherine popular with the many betty served by the few miss elizabeth had beheld herself the less favoured goddess and as of old the apple of paris had had the power to inflame Catherine's final crime against her rival had been her marrying of james murchison miss betty had chosen the gentleman for herself though she would rather have bitten her tongue off than have confessed the fact the hatred of the wife had been extended to the husband and dr parker steele had assuaged the smart and thus the rivalry of these two women lived on intensified by the professional rivalry of two men as for my lady betty she hated the wife in lombard street with all the quiet virulence of her nature it was the hate of the head for the heart of the intellect for the soul envy and jealousy were sponsors to the bantling that betty steele had reared katherine murchison had children 
Mrs. Steele had none. Her detestation of her rival was the more intense, even because she recognized the good in her that made her loved by others. Catherine Murchison had a larger following than Mrs. Steele in Roxton, and the truth strengthened the poison in the stew. With Catherine the feeling was more one of distaste than active enmity. Betty Steele repelled her, even as certain electrical currents repel the magnet. She mistrusted the woman, avoided her, even ignored her, an attitude which did not fail to influence Mrs. Betty. Catherine Murchison's heart was too full of the deeper happiness of life for her to trouble her head greatly about the pale and fastidious Greek, whose dark eyes flashed whenever she passed the great red-brick house in Lombard Street. Life had a June warmth for Catherine, nor had she that innate restlessness of soul that fosters jealousy and the passion for climbing above the common crowd. Parker Steele reminded his wife, as he rose from the breakfast-table, of a certain charity concert that was to be given at the Roxton Public Hall the same evening. "'Are you going?' "'Yes, I believe so. Mrs. Fraser extorted a guinea from us. I may as well get something for my money. And you?' Her husband smoothed his hair and looked in the mirror. "'Expecting a confinement,' If you get a chance, be polite to old Fraser. She would be worth bagging in the future, and Murchison thieved her from old Hicks. Catherine Murchison sang at the charity concert that night, and Mrs. Betty listened to her with the outward complacency of an angel. The big woman in her black dress, with a white rose in her ruddy hair, bowed and smiled to the enthusiasts of the Roxton slums, who knew her nearly as well as they knew her husband. Catherine Murchison's rare contralto flowed unconcernedly over her rival's head. She sang finely and without effort, and the voice seemed part of her, a touch of the sunset, a breath from the fields of June. Catherine's nature came out before men in her singing. A glorious unaffectedness, a charm with no trick of the self-conscious egoist. It was this very naturalness, this splendid unconcern, that have forever baffled Mrs. Betty Steele. The woman was proof against the mundane sneer. Ridicule could not touch her, and the burrs of spite fell away from her smooth completeness. By George, what a voice that woman has! The bourgeoisie of Roxton was piling up its applause. Mrs. Murchison had half the small boys in the town as her devoted henchmen. Politically, her personality would have carried an election. It comes from the heart, sir. Porteous Carmagee, solicitor and commissioner for oaths, had his bold head tilted towards Mr. Thomas Fleming's ear. Mr. Fleming was one of the cultured idlers of the town, a gentleman who was an authority on ornithology, who presided often at the county bench, and could dash off a cartoon that was not quite clever enough for punch. What did you say, Carmagee? The beggars are making such a din. "'From the heart, sir, from the heart. "'Indigestion, eh?' Mr. Carmagee was seized with an irritable twitching of his creased brown face. "'Oh, an encore, that's good. "'I said, Tom, that Kate Murchison's voice came from her heart. "'Very likely, very likely. "'I could sit all night and hear her sing. "'I doubt it,' quoth the man of culture with a twinkle. 
the opening notes rippled on the piano and mr carmagee lay back in his chair to listen he was a little monkey of a man fiery-eyed wrinkled with a grieved and husky voice that seemed eternally in a hurry he knew everybody and everybody's business and the secrets his bold pate covered would have trebled the circulation of the roxton herald in a week porteous carmagee was godfather to katherine murchison's two children she was one of the few women and he had stated it almost as a grievance who could make him admit the possible advantages of matrimony bravo bravo and mr carmagee slapped tom fleming's knee when the swans fly towards the south and the hills are all aglow i believe in woman bringing luck my friend oh possibly murchison took the right turning supposing he had married mr fleming trod on the attorney's toe look out she's there people have ears you know they're not chairs mr carmagee nursed a grievance on the instant mention a name he snapped and thomas fleming pointed towards mrs betty with his programme parker steele's wife drove home alone in her husband's brougham ignoring the many moonlight effects that the old town offered her with its multitudinous gables and timbered fronts she was not in the happiest of tempers feeling much like a sensuous cat that has been tumbled unceremoniously from some crusty stranger's lap betty had attempted blandishments with the distinguished mrs fraser and had been favoured with a shoulder and half an aristocratic cheek moreover she had watched the great lady melt under katherine murchison's smiles and such incidents are not rose-leaves to a woman mrs betty lay back in a corner of the brougham and indulged herself in mental tearings of katherine murchison's hair what insolent naturalness this rival of hers possessed mrs betty was fastidious and critical enough and her very acuteness compelled her to confess that her enmity seemed but a blunted weapon Catherine Murchison was so cantankerously popular, she looked well, dressed well, did things well, loved well. The woman was an irritating prodigy. It was her very sincerity, the wholesomeness of her charm, that made her seem invulnerable, a woman who never worried her head about social competition. Parker Steele sat reading before the fire when his wife returned. He uncurled himself languidly and with deliberation, pulled down his dress waistcoat, and put his book aside carefully on the table beside his chair. "'Enjoyed yourself?' "'Not vastly. I wonder why vulgar people always eat oranges in public.' "'Better than sucking lemons.' Mrs. Betty tossed her opera cloak aside and slipped into a chair. Her husband's complacency irritated her a little. He was not a sympathetic soul, save in the presence of prominent patients. "'You look bored, dear. Who performed?' "'The usual amateurs. I am tired to death. Are you coming to bed?' Parker Steele looked at the clock and sighed. "'I shall not be wanted till about five, he said. "'Confound these guinea babies. I hope to build a tariff wall round myself when we are more independent.' yes of course and mrs fraser safe in the other camp dear parker steele was dropping off to sleep that night when he felt his wife's hand upon his shoulder he turned with a grunt and saw her white face dim amid her cloud of hair anything wrong no do you believe in murchison parker 
believe in him yes is he reliable does he know his work her husband laughed why do you want to consult the fellow you have never caught him tripping not yet what are you driving at oh nothing and she turned away and put the hair back from her face feeling feverish with the ferment of her thoughts End of chapter 3